In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, we're in chapter 14. And can somebody remind us, was the last week, last chapter, chapter 13, what happened there? Anybody remember? That was chapter 12. Chapter 13, we talked about that after Satan was banished, and then, you know, the the monster coming out of the sea, and that we said that resembled the Antichrist, and then the other one, there's another monster that's coming out of the earth, and that was the false prophet. And we saw the the events that's going to happen at that time, and how they're going to have authority, and how they're going to... Uh, force people to worship the image of the Antichrist and make it look as if it's a, it's a real uh, real thing and how the Antichrist is going to go in and declare himself to be God and compare between chapter 13 and Revelation and the letter of St. Paul to the Thessalonians, second Thessalonians uh, in chapter 2 and we compared and saw that both visions are the same, or both not both prophecies. One was a vision, one was just you know a teaching of Saint John. So right now, in chapter 14, we're used to in Revelation that every time we see something, quote unquote, bad or something you know hard for us to understand, uh, that immediately afterwards we see something comforting. So the same thing is going to happen again this time. In chapter chapter 13, as I said, we saw the Antichrist and the false prophet. Chapter 14, immediately we get another wonderful image of Christ standing with his people, working with them, defending them in their midst, despite the hard times and despite the difficulties they're facing. So can somebody read to us the first few verses of chapter 14? Um, but you know the, the image of Christ and uh, those who are surrounding him. Huh? And I looked, and lo, the Lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him were a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping, and with their harps, with their harps. And they sang as it, and they sang as it were a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that the, no one could learn that the song except the hundred and forty-four thousands who were redeemed from the earth. These are those who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are those who follow the man wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men as a first fruit to God and to the men. And their mouth was found no guile, for they were without blemish before the throne of God. Glory be to God for Alright. So that's, as I said, it's another vision of Christ among his people. Uh, and, lo- and I looked, and lo, the Lamb stood on Mount Zion. If you remember early on in chapter 4, and he was sitting on the throne. Now he's standing because this is a difficult time. It's like a war going on against the church and the Antichrist is going in and trying to destroy the church. So Christ is not going to be sitting down, relaxing while his children are suffering. 
you know, while the church is suffering. So he's going to be standing and he's going to be in the middle of the battle fighting. So the interesting thing is when we looked at chapter 13, the picture looked really bad. And we thought that God sort of, you know, gave up on the earth and forgot the whole thing. When in reality, God is still standing there and we're still guiding. So even if we're not going to see God's hand in what's happening, we have to be assured that God is still there. God is taking care of us, God is helping us, God is in the midst, even if we don't understand. We're not going to comprehend how God is working, but He promised to be there, so He's going to be there. That's the first thing. And here it says, the Lamb stood. If you go back to chapters, you know, 13, in 13, 11, the false prophet, he looked like a lamb. This is the true lamb. The devil is going to try to take the image of God, but this is the real one. Mount Zion. What is uh, Mount Zion? Does anybody remember? Mount Zion. What's Mount Zion? Does anybody know the story of Mount Zion? Let's find out what is Mount Zion. The Psalm should be Psalm 48. Okay. One and two. Uh, great is Jehovah, and greatly to be praised is the city of our God in the mountain of His holiness. Beautiful on high, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, on the sides of the north, the city of the great King. So Mount Zion is basically is the mountain where David took from uh, another tribe and he, on it he built Jerusalem. So Jerusalem and Mount Zion became synonymous. That's why, for example, in Psalms we say a lot, we pray for Mount Zion. We're not praying for the mountain itself, we're praying for uh, Jerusalem. But that's, that's in the Old Testament. So do you really still believe in Jerusalem and the Old Testament and you know, Mount Zion and Palestine and all this, or you know, Jerusalem, whatever you want to call that? No. As we said, the old, all the Old Testament and the symbols of Old Testaments are transferred right now to the New Testament. The God's people, God's chosen people in the Old Testament are now the church. It's you and I and everyone who believe in God, who accepted God and baptized and so on. The old Jerusalem is the church. The old Mount Zion now is also the church within the church. That's one. And then when we go to Revelation 21-2, we're going to find another Jerusalem. Here's exactly this point. Yeah, very good. It's in Jerusalem heaven. And now let's read, you know, this verse 21-2. And I, John, saw saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we have a, a sort of transformation. God established his you know, a nation, God established a city, established a temple in the Old Testament. And we have the final one in heaven. And the church is a transition from the old to the new and that's the continuation of the church is in heaven. 
and from the beginning of this, you know, this Bible study in Revelation, we've been talking a lot about how does the church, the building of the church, the, the you know, tradition of the church, and everything we practice in the church reminds us exactly what's happening. The priest wearing white, the you know, incense, the lights, the deacons, everybody in the church trying to resemble us or remind us with how heaven looks like. So we are in sort of in transition period, getting ready to go to heaven and to the heavenly Jerusalem. So yes, the new Jerusalem is heaven. But right now the church is that new Jerusalem. Okay? Very good. So we'll go back to chapter 14. And with him were 144,000. With him. So he's standing and they're standing with him. He's not far from them. He's not sitting on his throne and leaving them away on earth suffering. No, he's standing with them during the suffering, during the tribulations. He's standing with them. Where 144,000, having his father's name written in their forehead. So now 144,000. Again, we, this is the second time we come across this number. In the previous time, when it was mentioned, they mentioned 12,000 from every tribe. This time has probably the same meaning or a little bit different, you know, we can look at it from a different meaning. The father that may have a different meaning. Uh, it's the same, sorry, not, not this number. Uh, except for another number. 144,000 is the same. God's people, 12 times 12, 7,000. The Old Testament, you know, the Church of the Old Testament, the Church of the New Testament, and a thousand heavenly. So these are God's chosen people who are standing with Him. And his father's name written in their forehead. If you go back to chapter uh, uh, chapter 13, you're going to see that we talked about the Antichrist writing his name on the forehead of people and on their you know, wrists so they can trade and so on. And we talked about that in the uh, symbolic sense that putting the, the stamp or the, the sign on the, on the forehead this is where the thinking is this is where we, you know, we use for thinking and so on um, so having the stamp of God on our foreheads means we are thinking in God's way and as St. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.5 putting down imagination and every high thinking that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought into the obedience of Christ right? so if, if we reach the level of you know, capturing every thought into the obedience of Christ then God's name is written on our forehead because now every thought that we have is linked to God's name and God's you know will. Right? We also remember that in uh, in Revelation, also Christ said, "Do not do anything until the, you know I stamp the stamp of God is on His children." That was in chapter seven. Right? And I heard 
a great voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of great thunder, and I heard the voice of harps harping with the harps. Again, the fathers say that um, the the many voices, this is the voice of praise for many nations, and the Holy Spirit walk, you know, talks in us. And they say that many waters, because again, the waters, the fresh water is the sign of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit works in each one of us. Each one of us is going to praise God with a different voice, with a different song, for a different purpose. I'm going to praise God for one purpose. You're going to praise God for a different purpose. He's going to praise God for a different purpose. So it becomes like many waters. And for many nations, also each one praising God, it's loud thunder. Imagine if, you know, millions of people are shouting and praising God all at the same time. How strong that's going to be, how wonderful that's going to be, and how scary that's going to be to the devil. When we stand up and praise God in the church, uh, I heard something, you know, very nice, Abuna Sanasi said it the other day, that even if you don't understand what we're saying, the devil understands and runs away. So, let's something to keep in mind that the devil hears this as a great thunder scary for him and I heard the voice of harpers harping on their harps and they sang as it were a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth so what is this mysterious song we're going to find later on that this is the song of Moses. So what's so mysterious about the song? How come nobody could have sang that except the 144,000? And by the way, we said the 144,000 is just a symbolic number. And in Revelation 7, after he said the 144,000, he said a number that no one can count. So it's all, you know, all those who are saved. So how come only those people can sing that song? Is it in Coptic? That's why nobody else can sing it? as in Latin or whatever, some other you know, ancient language, so no, no secret song. No. Simply, if I am in sin, if I am captive to sin, I can't praise God. Praising God becomes something hard, something difficult to do. Let's go back to Psalm 137. By the river of Babylon, there... There we sat down by the rivers of Babylon. Also we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our lyres on the willows in its midst. For there our captors demanded a song from us, and our plunders demanded gladness, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing Jehovah's song in a foreign land? If I am captive, if I'm like the... Which one? No. Do you know how we read chapters? After every fourth chapter, sing the part. No. Kula is blind. Two weeks to remember that one. Relive that one. No, but basically, remember the prodigal son when he was away. He was not happy. If, if 
if, I, if I'm, you know, enslaved to sin, if I'm enslaved to serve something specific, how can I praise God? How can I glorify God? How can I stand up, you know, in Tazbikha and, you know, sing and be happy and sing of God's, you know, salvation and Him freeing me? I'm not going to have the heart and the spirit to do that. I'm not going to be able to do it. And that's what the psalm is reminding us of. That when God's people were, in, were captured in Babylon, they couldn't praise God. They couldn't really be happy and sing about God. It's the same thing for us. If I'm in the midst of a sin, guess what? I won't be able to praise God appropriately and it's going to be very hard to praise Him. So only those people who are free from sin, only those people who were, you know, felt God's salvation and lived it, they'll be able to praise Him. It's not because it's a mysterious song, but it's because they were able to enjoy God's salvation. They were happy. That's why people outside in the world, they could, they can't understand why do we come to church and, you know, praise and waste our time, basically. They see that as a, as a you know, waste of time. They better enjoy their, you know, their time in front of TV and, you know, the dish and going to parties and, and all these things. They don't, they can't enjoy the atmosphere of the church because sin that's living inside them gets them heavy. A new song. Again, I'm gonna. Every time we praise God, it should be a new song. Not because the songbook is the same for the last five years or six years it hasn't changed, but new songs again because every day I'm gonna discover something new about God and praise Him for something new. And I'm gonna. The, the song of salvation every day is gonna be, become to me something new because I'm gonna experience God's salvation in my life in a different way every day. So I'm gonna praise Him constantly. And they were singing before the throne and before the living creatures. So when we praise, our praises goes directly to heaven. And the fathers say that God tells his angels to be quiet so he can listen to our voices, no matter how horrible it is. Alright, redeemed from the earth, again redemption. We keep hearing the word redeemed. Christ paid the price for our sins. So what, who did he pay the price for? Or what is this whole thing? Two things. First, when we sin, we're supposed to die. So when Christ died on our behalf, he sort of paid the price of our death by him dying for us. The second thing is that the, the divine justice demand, you know, required that whoever sins dies. So Christ fulfilled the divine justice. So that's, you know, you can say that he paid the price for the divine justice because there's a lot of discussions going on uh, about some of these concepts and so on who did God pay the price for and so on so let's just quick note on it these are those who were not defiled with women for they were virgins these are those who follow the lamb wherever he goes these were redeemed from among men as the first fruit of God for the lamb and this is a very heavy verse can spend a couple of days discussing this verse by itself. These were not defiled with women. Does that mean marriage is wrong? That this mean apply only on the monks? Because some people actually like to call, you know, say that. Doesn't make sense. Because marriage is sacred and Christ himself resembled his relationship to the church as a man to his wife. 
and we can look into that into Ephesians five twenty-two, the famous verses that a lot of women don't like. Uh, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as to the Lord. So the relationship between a man and a wife is sacred and God makes it close to him. And now we're going to see a lot more closer relationship. For the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So if marriage was not pure, would God have resembled that to his relationship to the church? Of course not. Would God have instituted marriage and blessed it from Genesis? Of course not. So marriage is pure, you know, in the appropriate sense. And this is one of the church second. So what does it mean that they were did not defile defiled with women? Can mean physically uh, sex outside marriage, that's number one, which is of course can be the lowest sense. But if we look at it from the spiritual sense, go back to the Old Testament and read the Old Testament, especially the prophets. God resembles Israel as a wife who betrayed her husband and went and committed adultery with other gods. Especially, you know, chapters like uh, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 23, and so on, becomes very clear the relationship that God resembles uh, adultery and worshipping idols and worshipping other gods. Why? God brought us to himself, and St. Paul says that, that God, you know, that I espouse you, as a version to Christ right? in Second Corinthians 11.2 he said from I'm jealous over you was godly jealous for I have espoused you to one man to present you as a pure version to Christ so we're supposed to be God's you know bride it's not a marriage but we're supposed to be God's bride we're dedicated to him it's a, it's a personal relationship between us and God. Now we leave God and worship other gods. What does that mean? That means a man and woman are engaged to be married. What do you think the, you know, the feeling of the man is if the woman leaves him and goes and commits adultery with another man? Or the woman, what's her feeling is if the man leaves her and commits adultery with another woman and they were still engaged? Of course, that you know, is unacceptable. It's the same thing. We are God's bride. All of us, men and women, the whole church is God's bride. So if we leave God and follow other gods, as if we committed adultery. We take that concept, apply to, again, in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and all these you know, prophets, specifically Ezekiel, you find this image very vivid. Okay, so here, those who are not defiled with women, basically means those who do not follow other gods. Those who do not worship money, those who do not worship glory, those who do not worship, you know, their self and so on. That can be main versions, the main story. And what else for versions? Hmm. 
and those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Even if He goes, even if it was a difficult path, they still follow Him. Don't forget, the resemblance here is a little bit transport, right? God, He said about Himself, He's a shepherd, and usually wherever the shepherd walks, we should follow Him. They don't understand, they're just going to follow Him, whatever. Here, He is the Lamb, but we are still following Him. These were redeemed from among men as the first fruit to God and to the Lamb. And the whole first fruit concept is again concept that God established Himself. During the time of Israelites were in Egypt and they were leaving Egypt, God told Moses, let every Israelite put blood on the door. No. And so then the angel will come, will not kill the firstborn and kill the firstborn of the Israelites. So after they got out of Egypt, God told Moses, look, every firstborn belongs to me. And now instead of them dying, they were saved by the blood of the Lamb. So now they belong to me. But God said, instead of me taking every firstborn from every person, I will replace that by the tribe of Levi. So now the tribe of Levi became God's special tribe. And if you count the other tribes, you're going to find that there are 12 tribes plus the tribe of Levi. Because now they became God's special people. And for those who love math, there were 12 children of Jacob. We took Levi out. They became 11. How come they're still 12? Have you ever heard about the tribe of Joseph? No. Why? Because God took Joseph and replaced him with his children, Ephraim and Manasseh. So now they became back 12 again. And we said that in the, I think, chapter uh, 5 and 6. Anyway, so these are the first fruit. The first fruit are always dedicated to God. The first fruit are always God's special. So we are all the first fruit, each one of us, because we are all dedicated to God. We dedicated our lives to God, we became the first fruit. Also, our first fruit is Christ. St. Paul says that the first fruit is Christ because He's the first one to raise from the dead. So He's our first fruit. Does that make sense? Well, uh, see a lot of confused faces, eh? Huh? You're always confused? Does that make sense? Well, uh, any questions about this first fruit stuff? Because I'm saying that we are the first fruit. It represents us as a Christian as a whole because we were chosen by God. I'm sorry? As human beings, we're the first fruit of the creation, all the creation. But as Christians, we're the first fruit because we belong to God. God chose Himself the first fruit. So in the Old Testament, everything they used to present the first fruits to, to God in the altar. They used to take whatever they have and they present it to God in the altar. Plant the field, the first crop, take it and offer it to God. You know, first child, supposedly go and offer it to God in, in the altar and, and so on. But God replaced the first child by Levi. Okay. Okay. 
let's go to Hebrews 20 I'm sorry Hebrews 12 Hebrews 12:22 But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn again here St. Paul is talking again you find that the Bible if you study it well it all relates to each other and you can understand it when you study the Bible as a whole so here St. Paul is talking about the church as being Mount Zion as being the heavenly Jerusalem and he's talking about us as being the firstborn or as a first fruit. Okay. Let's move on. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they were without blemish before the throne of God. They did not repeat the heresies of the Antichrist, they did not worship the Antichrist, they did not talk about, you know, the theme, then praise the Antichrist. So that's why there was no guile in their mouth. And the question for you and I is what's, what's being said from our mouth? Is there any guile that we speak of or are we not singing anything, saying anything wrong? Okay. So that's basically the first um, the first part of chapter 14. Okay. which is the song of the Lamb. Let's, this is this was the first part of chapter 14 the second part of chapter 14 now we're going to see sort of the final warnings one before God you know and actually they, these warnings also we're going to see in them that the final angel is warning about the end of the world and describing you know we're going to see a description of the end of the world as we said in the book of Revelation sometimes we see the same events happen and they're described in different ways just to emphasize the event and emphasize the importance of what's going to happen we see them happening in different ways so here we're going to see a description 
of the end of the world and the judgment day and then later on we're going to sort of resume on the last part with the, the last seven plagues that are going to come on earth and focus on the, the days of the Antichrist a little bit more. So let's go through these angels uh, quickly. That some of you know they're very small. Uh, let's try to let's move on. Somebody else would be. So this is the first one, um, and this one is bringing in, uh, flying in mid-heaven, uh, and bringing in the, the gospel to preach to everyone on earth. Some of the fathers, you know, like to think that this is one of the, you know, the prophet that's going to be at the end of the day, that God is going to send to counter the act of the Antichrist and the counter the preaching of the Antichrist and his prophet and so on so God is going to send one of the a prophet to spread and defend the faith and they say that the reason he's presented by an angel is he's going to be moving around the earth quickly you know in everywhere every place praise, you know sending God's word some like to think that this is going to be in particular Elijah and the second one you know Really, there's nothing that can explain or justify this particular way of thinking. And again, to preach to those dwelling on earth, even to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So everyone is going to be receiving the warning and going to be receiving the message about God. Everybody, and we saw everybody in chapter 13, is going to be forced to worship the, the Antichrist and forced to worship Satan. At the same time, they're going to be hearing about God. So everyone is going to have a choice. Nobody can come at the end of the day and say, Hey, wait a minute. I didn't know that this guy was fake. I didn't know that, you know, doing this was wrong. God makes sure that everyone has the message and everyone has heard what's right and what's wrong. It's, otherwise, you will not be just God. But, Before they die, they that's in general and in particular during the end times when the, again this prophet, this heresy is going to be so prevailing and everybody's going to follow the antichrist so at the end days you know when God judges people they're going to tell them when everybody was following how would we know that this was wrong he's going to tell them look I send you prophets I send you people I send you the, you know messages to warn you but you did not heed okay. saying with a great voice Fear God and give glory to Him. Again, the concept of fearing God is a very important concept, whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament. Just because we're in the New Testament, we should not forget about fearing God. Right? We should not think that now it's the era of love and forget about you know fearing God. God is fearful at all times. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the fountains of the waters. Because apparently at that time everyone is not going to be worshipping the Antichrist and not going to be worshipping God. Okay. 
This is short, so I'll read that one. And another angel followed saying, The great city Babylon has fallen, has fallen because of the wine of the anger of her fornication. She has made all nations to drink. Now, remember we talked about Babylon before. Right? Do you remember what we said about Babylon? Do you remember when was Babylon started? Who established Babylon? Nimrod. We said Babylon represents the city of evil. Or, you know, we have two cities. We have the fate of two cities. Jerusalem and Babylon. Jerusalem is God's city. Babylon is the city of evil or the city that stood against God. Uh, This is where they tried to build Tower of Babylon to go and challenge God. This is what tried to build fortress for themselves to prevent God from incurring on them another uh, uh, flood. So they were n- known to be rebellious against God and challenging God. So that city, the symbol of the city, is always taken to be the arrogant city, the one that's full of sin and the one that's against God. So here the great city Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And it's repeated twice to indicate that really the destruction of Babylon and the destruction of the place where you know, the Antichrist is going to be uh, serving or, or residing. Because the wine of the anger of the fornication she has made all nations to drink. That's a big problem is when we cause somebody else to sin. It's going to be punished because of the sin and also because it's going to lead all the other nations to, to sin after its gods. Verse 9, And the third angel followed them, saying with a great voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, he also will drink the wine of the anger of God, having been mixed undiluted in the cup of his wrath and he will be tormented by fire and brimstone before the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and or night those who worship the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name scary right and there are some people who say oh by the way, there's no punishment at the end. All this thing about hell and so on, oh, this just scared little kids you know, to make them obey their parents and there's even no hell. Uh, so don't worry about it. Uh, everybody's going to be saved. God is merciful. Everybody's going to be saved. Even Satan himself is going to be saved. Don't worry. You know, Just go ahead, do whatever you want. Unfortunately, that's some of the concept around us. And some of it is actually getting into the Coptic church as well. Well, the Bible is very clear that Babylon is going to be destroyed and, you know, we're not going to go and explain <laughs> what each one of these tortures and, you know, suffering is. it is. I mean, it's, I think it's self-explanatory. Uh, but we should not forget God is merciful, God is just, we should love God, we should fear God, there is reward and there is punishment.
And it's our choice, but you know, we can choose either one of them. So apparently here, the image of, the, you know, and the mark are, you know, they're going to be different stages of worshipping the Antichrist or following the Antichrist, you know, worshipping his image, having the mark on the forehead and the hand and so on. They're going to be different levels of those people, you know, following him. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are the ones who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The patience of the saints. So, times are going to be tough. Yes, times are going to be tough. It's going to be hard to follow God in this case. Yes, it will be. But at the same time, it's not going to be impossible because he's going to be there helping us. For the patience of the saints, there's you know a couple of verses that are very nice to to read in Daniel chapter 12 the last two verses uh, can, can you read them again? no no 11 and 12 I'm sorry 11 and 12 So basically, 1,290 days and then 1,395 days. What's the difference? 45 days? 45 days? So the difference, let's forget about, you know, what, if they, you know, what, what these things mean. Let's just look at these two numbers. So basically, God says it's going to be pro- problems and troubles for 1,000 290 days but if you are patient for 1,335 days you know you're going to be saved so yes every time the devil is going to try us to think that oh it's going to be forever it's never going to be you know we're never going to be able to sustain to hold strong until this tribulation goes by I can't take it anymore I wish it ends one way or the other but if we just hold a little bit longer, that's what salvation is going to come, and the problem is going to be solved, and God's glory is going to appear. Regardless of the meaning of the numbers and so on, and we're going to talk about that later on, but this is a simple message God is telling us. Hang in there, hang in there for a few more days. So if you're going through some hard times, tell yourself, hang in there for a few more days, you're going to find that things are resolving by themselves. Again, who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Regardless of what the word is saying, these saints are keeping the commandments of God. Regardless of the teaching of the word outside, we should be keeping the commandments of God and not the commandments of the word. And I heard a voice in heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord 
from now on yes as the spirit they shall rest from their labors and their works shall follow them we hear this verse a lot in funerals right this is one of the common verses that are said in, in funerals and in condolence you know in the people uh, who have lost the loved ones because uh, basically you know says that if you die now it's a lot better than waiting until the end blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on so what ha- what does it mean so we all go and commit you know, suicide and you know, pray every night that we can die and, and whatever no uh, it's very simple is that if God wills that we would die great no problem but at the same time if we die from the world if we die from the desires of the world blessed are you know those who die from the desires of the world and the love of the world so they shall rest from their labors and their works shall follow them but this of course applies morally to those people who departed or who will depart or who will suffer the tribulation or even martyrdom for the sake of God at the end days and they looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having the golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle on his hand so now we start seeing the 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 vision of the judgment day none of the things before says anything about the millennium reign or you know rapture of the saints or whatever by the way some people like to take that verse 14.1 and say oh this is see here the lamb stood uh, on Mount Zion uh, with 144 so Christ is going to come and be on Mount Zion with uh, his favorite people which of course are the Jews uh, for a period of time before the Antichrist uh, course does not make sense that way Christ's second coming is going to be known everyone is going to see him every eye is going to see him it's not going to be a hidden secret like some people said God you know Christ came and reigned over the clouds in 19 whatever 1919 and 1936 and he's raining down the clouds right now our friends Jehovah's Witness are saying this is not the case Christ when he's going to come again in his second coming every eye shall see him it's going to be very clear everyone is going to know that uh, white cloud presents purity presents you know um, him being pure blemish without sin and on the cloud set one like the son of man why the son of man he took our image his glory is going to be shining at that time so no one is going to be able to say that he's a real or human you know normal human being having a golden crown because he is the king of kings and he's coming to give, you know, give judgment at the end days and a sharp sickle in his hand so here's what he's going to make the judgment and selection and reap his uh, his uh, crop 
it's an instrument they use for cutting the uh, the wheat basically it's like a big blade and they cut it like this so they you know it's very sharp so they cut the the wheat they don't have it when they didn't have any mechanical instruments they had to cut it just you know, by hand they go in and they so that's what and another angel came out of the temple crying in a great voice to him sitting on the cloud thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth was dried again this is a key thing to understand for the time has come for you to reap God is going to do everything at the proper time. We always try to ask God. In our lives, you know, I know that no one thinks to happen today. But God knows that it should happen in a few days from now. But we want everything to happen now. Even if you remember in chapter 5, the saints who are under the, the altar said they were in paradise. They were crying for God's judgment now but God told them you have to wait until the whole church completes basically and wait for you oops the saints to be completed so that's uh, what's going to happen is that at the proper time and the time has come for you to reap they're going to be God is going to come and he's going to collect those who are righteous on his side and those who are not righteous they're going to go to everlasting hell in verse 16 and he sitting on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped that's going to happen at once some people say some of the fathers say that the sickle is basically the angels they're going to go and collect you know, the righteous on one side and the evil people on, on the other side. Because that also resembles the parable of the sower uh, in Matthew 13. Matthew 13 basically the, you know that talks about the parable of the sower who you know went and sowed the the wheat and then his enemy came in and sowed you know the the bad seeds and then that said at the end let them grow together and then at the end they're going to collect the wheat put in the barn and then you know the the bad seeds burn it and throw it into the fire. So here, again, matches exactly what the Bible has said before about the end days and how is this going to be happening. Whether it happens by angels or what happens by one word of God, God can do everything by just the power of His word.
and another angel came out of the temple in heaven also having a sharp sickle and another angel came out from the altar who had authority on fire and spoke with a great cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for he for her grapes are fully ripe so here Again, this is the grapes that's fully ripe that's going to be representing the the evil people who will be sent to hell, and that's what the next verse is going to explain. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the anger of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out of the wine press even to the bridles of the horse for the space of a thousand sixty hundred stadia which is like you know a mile or so so that's the final end of those who follow the antichrist and all for the evil people it's not pretty Unfortunately, it's not pretty. And again, the devil is going to try to make all kind of illusions that he has control. If you follow him, it's going to be great. It's going to be a fun ride. You know, you're going to enjoy it. You know, don't worry about anything. But in reality, the end is horrible. We don't talk a lot about that in, our, you know, in the church in general. On the society in general doesn't accept talking about and explaining what's going to happen at the end for the righteous and for the unrighteous. Unfortunately, sometimes when we don't talk about that, when we don't mention it, people forget about the punishment for the for the evil people and end up you know, giving themselves a lot of time to, to enjoy that. But anyway, some other people like to look at this at the, the last battle at the end against the Antichrist. As I'm sure you heard about the Battle of Hermogadon and we mentioned that, uh, I'm going to mention that later on. But that battle supposedly is going to be between the Antichrist and the armies against uh, the believers and they're going to be destroyed at that time. So some people like to think that this particular two verses talk about that battle, battle and the end of the Antichrist especially uh, it says that this is uh, uh, the wine press was trodden outside the city and the city here most likely represents Jeru- you know, this, the symbolic Jerusalem and blood came out of the wine press even to the bridles of the horses that can be literal or that can be spiritual that you know it's a lot the space of 1,600 stadia. 1,600. The fathers look at that as only two combinations. Either 40 times 40. And 40 is the period either our wandering in the world. Or it's a period of wait. That was, and after which something you know, happens. For example, Moses waited 40 days before receiving the Ten Commandments. God told the Nevites to, you know, fast for 40 days to repent. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. So number 40 represents a period of, of wait. Even Lord Himself 
that's the forty days after which he started serving. Okay. So forty times forty is time for the creation of time, complete time of wandering on earth. Another way to look at this is four times four times a hundred. Four times four is sixteen times a hundred, you know, fifteen hundred. So four, we said the four always represents the world, the four, the, you know, directions of the world. So four times four is all the world is gonna, you know, gonna see this, or all the world is gonna uh, suffer from this. And a hundred represents just, you know, the complete number, and also God's people were represented by the flock of a hundred sheep. So that's one of the meaning of this number. Okay. There is, this is basically the chapter. I want to go back and look at Exodus chapter 15. Because this is the famous song of Moses. What happened? Where did go? The song of Moses is an extremely important song. And the, you know, it's the song of the Moses and the Lamb. And the church loves this song so much that it uses every night in our midnight praise. Which hose is this? First or the second? The, 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 uh, the song of Moses. Exodus 15, the first hose, right? First hose. Can we just read it quickly? Just to know what it's talking about here. Okay, actually, that's, we're going to see that in the next chapter. In chapter... In chapter uh, 15, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, uh, Great and marvelous, marvelous are your works. Yes, it is. Right? That's why I want to go through this quickly and then go back to chapter 15. Uh, then the sons of Moses and Israel sang the song to Jehovah and spoke saying I will sing to Jehovah for his for he has triumphed triumphant gloriously this horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea Jehovah is my strength and song and he has become my salvation we're going to sing this you know on uh, in Holy Week during Pascha he is my God, and I will glorify Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Java is a man of war. Java is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has thrown into the sea. His chosen captain, captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. Death have covered them. They sank into the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Java, has become glorious in power. Your right hand 
Oh Jehovah has dashed the enemy in pieces and in the greatness of your excellency you have overthrown them that rose up against you you sent forth your wrath consuming them like stubble and with the blast of your nostrils the waters were gathered together the floods stood upright like a harp like a heap the depths were curdled in the heart of the sea the enemy said I will pursue I will overtake I will divide the spoil my lust, lust shall be satisfied upon them I will draw my sword my hand shall destroy them you blew with your wind the sea covered them they sank like lead in the mighty waters who is like you O Jehovah among the gods who is like you glorious in holiness fearful in praises uh, doing wonders and sure you can continue that later on why is this why does God concentrate on this particular praise there's a lot of hymns in the Bible there's a lot of there's 151 songs there's a lot of other songs but why does God concentrate on this particular song and relates that to the end days go back and you know this is Exodus right so there's only one book before that go back to the book of Genesis and the first 14 chapters in Exodus there are no other praises this is the first praise that we see first song that we see in the Bible and the topic of the song is what freedom from slavery this is the whole idea that we are living here. God has freed us from the slavery of the devil. If we don't understand that, if we're not happy because of this freedom, then we don't understand what God did for us and we're not going to be able to enjoy heaven. Only those who are freed from the devil, only those who gain their freedom through God can really praise Him and that praise and really this praise becomes very powerful for I said earlier, they're going to be able to praise this constantly every day with a renewed faith, a renewed happiness, because they have discovered something new that God has freed them from, another sin, another habit, another thought, whatever. God is going to free us on a daily basis. We're going to go in a curve going up every day until we reach heaven. Again, that's why the church, guided by the Holy Spirit, and extreme wisdom has put this in front of us on a daily basis to pray not for you know some people to show up their nice voices and you know shout and scream and sing in Coptics and nobody understands no it's because this song is going to see in chapter 15 this is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb praising God fulfilling us from the captivity of sin so please go home read it turn on the Tazbaha and thank God that right now Tazbaha is available on hundreds of websites Arabic, English, Coptic whatever you want to hear sing this you know tonight and, and enjoy it and think about the words that it, you know, it's saying and the triumph 
that God is giving us in our life over sin and over desire. You're going to find that this is extremely powerful song. Extremely powerful. Let's go over chapter 15. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels with the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image, and over his mark and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify you, glorify your name, for you only are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your righteousness were made known. Okay. Another sign in heaven. Why in heaven? Because the source, God allows the troubles to happen by His commandment. So anything that will happen, even here on earth, it will happen by God's commandment. And also, at the end days, God's anger is going to reach the, the maximum. So He will send His anger also from heaven. Great and marvelous. Great and marvelous because these plagues are going to be coming against the Antichrist and against His kingdom. And the illusion the Antichrist is going to be spreading in the world because he's going to claim that he is God and he and as a God of course nothing affects him and nothing you know will happen to him so when these things ha- you know when these plagues happen over them over the kingdom of the Antichrist people are going to be amazed and surprised how can this happen to God if God is in control how can this happen if he is God how can these plagues happen to his people? When Pharaoh was, again, go back and the story of Pharaoh. The story of Pharaoh is not in the Bible just for amusement and not to be told to little kids in the movie. The story of Pharaoh there is for a purpose. Even Pharaoh, who thought he was even the strongest and his musicians were strongest, when Moses was performing God's miracle and the musicians were using their magic and evil power to simulate or some do miracles similar to Moses, all that time Pharaoh found that you know he was strong enough. But when bigger things happened on them that the uh, magicians couldn't replicate, he started saying what? What did the, what did the magicians admit? This is the hand of God. They started realizing that, wait a minute, our power is limited and there's a higher power over us. So the troubles, the tribulations, the plagues that God allows, and He's going to be sending over the Antichrist and His kingdom, 
is not just for punishment, but also to let them know, look, he is not God, there is a real God. If this guy was a true God, he wouldn't allow any of these things to happen. Wake up and realize who is God, where is the real power is. But they're not. I'm going to put the blinders on, and they're going to just forget about everything and try to convince themselves it's just, you know, global warming and, you know, La Nina, El Nino, all these things are happening and the storms are happening. God has nothing to do with that. It's just, you know, nature. Right? I'm saying it sarcastically, but, you know, if you think about it, God is sending us messages and we're just trying to give another explanation for it. Instead of repenting and, you know, saying, well, maybe we're doing something wrong and maybe God is talking to us. We're giving ourselves different explanations and different reasons. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last plague. They're going to be strong, powerful, uh, scary, but these are going to be the last plagues. Seven angels, again, number seven is a complete number, represents God's full wrath. And some of the fathers said that these seven plagues are God's punishment from the beginning to the end, not just you know, at the end of the word, but from the beginning to the end. And they're going to be repeated and maybe concentrated more toward the end days. We're going to see things that happened before, and later on we're going to see them happening again with more intensity at the end days. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. This is really scary. Right? We know God is patient. We know God is loving. You know, long suffering. He's, you know, he doesn't uh, let Fatila uh, Mudakhina, the. What's Fatila Mudakhina? No, not Nagaraj. I mean, if there's something that has any little hope in it, he puts a lot of energy in, you know, making it stay and so on, you know. Uh, even if the branch is broken, he fixes it, even if, you know, smoldering. Uh, Torch, something that's dying, a torch that's dying, he rekindles that and he doesn't you know, give up on it. And now it says the wrath of God, full, filled up with the wrath of God. So it must have been, or it must going to be really bad at the end days, and the sin is going to be overwhelming, that the wrath of God is going to be really, really filled. And that's why all these things are going to happen. It's not because God is, is not merciful or not just or whatever, but because sin is going to be so overwhelming. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. Where did we see that sea of glass before? All these things. Where did we see the sea of fire, before, sea of glass before? Not mingled with fire, but sea of glass. Chapter five, chapter in chapter five uh, before uh, in Revelation that was in front of the throne. Okay, and those who were victorious were you know, that was leading to the throne. At that time, we said that the sea of glass represents baptism. And that's how it's going to get us to the throne. But not now. Why is it mingled with fire?
can be the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles as fire but also to receive the Holy Spirit through the water uh, in the Mayroon but what else? what else can fire represent? Mm, not, not exactly but tribulations when you go through tribulation as if you're going through fire so to get to the throne basically or to get into the end we're going to have to go we have to be baptized we're going to have to go through tribulation and suffering and remember Ambabola the only word that we have about Ambabola who left who lived for 70 years in solitary with God 100% all of his time all his teaching with God he said only one word you know what that is? <coughs> he who runs away from tribulations runs away from God. So, tribulation is there to cleanse us, to train us, to get us better, to expose to, our, to ourselves the weaknesses we have in our lives. I can, I can live great. Never get angry until I first, you know, meet the first human being that, you know, asks me a question and then I blow up in anger and, you know, does that mean I'm a calm person or an angry person? Right? So God allows these, you know, tribulations to happen for multiple of reasons. It's to, to show us our own weakness, first of all. Second, to let us earn credit when you go school and go and take the exam and pass and so on, you earn credits, right? So you didn't graduate at the end. So you, you tolerated certain suffering, you tolerated, you know, problems in your life and so on, not of your own doing, but were put on you. God is getting you into higher and higher levels of spirituality by tolerating all these things. So how come prayer is a Temptation is different than tribulations. <clears throat> Temptation is leads us to sin. <laughs> tribulations is like, for example, somebody gets sick, somebody, uh, somebody's loved one passes away, uh, losing a job for you know, not your own. Any any hardship that we go through without our own doing. I'm emphasizing without our own doing because I can go and take drugs, drive a car, end up to be, or, you know, get drunk and drive, get into an accident, break my legs, and say, oh, this is tribulations. That's a reward for, you know, getting drunk and driving while I'm drunk. That's different. Okay? So, uh, baptism and tribulations are going to be key in our and us getting into eternal life. And those who had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. Why is he saying his image, his mark, the number of his name? Again, as we said in chapter 14, there might, have, might be different levels of following the, you know, Satan or following the Antichrist might be for you know getting his number is one thing but getting his image 
that's an advanced stage. So even whatever stage you're going to be using, even just you know getting his number to trade and to live and to meshihalakian, that's also not going to be accepted. So that's part of chapter 13. Stand on the sea of glass, uh, having the hearts of God. Standing on the sea is like, you know, having the power, being victorious, uh, and not losing. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Again, we talked about that. Saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of Saints. Wait a minute. This is not the song of Moses. Didn't we just read the song of Moses? That's not it. So what do you mean? Again, the idea is the song of Moses is not just the words that Moses sang with the people. It's the spirit of the singing and the appreciation of God's victory over Satan and freeing them from the, the power of evil. That's the same thing that's being praised about here. And you can take every word and you can find similar references in Exodus 15. Not exactly the same words, but something similar in the concept and similar in the spirit. So again, the idea is not just the words, but the, the, the concept and the feelings. That's why it says a new song. The song has been in the Bible for at least 1,500, I'm sorry, 3,500 years, or maybe 3,000 years. And how can it be a new song unless you live it on a daily basis in a victorious way? Great and marvelous are your works. They're saying that during the time of the Antichrist, during the time when it seems that Christ has lost the battle and the Antichrist is ruling over the world. Again, they experience God's victory in their lives despite what the world sees as the victory of the devil. This is very important because, again, we expect for God to demonstrate His victory physically, Everybody becomes Christians, everybody becomes Coptic Orthodox, and follow us, and everybody's going to be great and happy. God shows His victory in different way. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of Saints. God is your King, you become a saint. God is somebody foreign to you, it's a different story. Who shall not fear you? Again, these are saints from the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, but from the New Testament. Even from future time, they're going to say, who, who does not fear you? O Lord, and glorify your name, for you only are holy. You only. Why? Because the Antichrist is going to declare himself to be holy and to be a God. So they're saying, no, only you are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your righteousness were made known. And after these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony was opened in heaven. And the seven angels came out 
of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and were tied at the breast with golden bands. Wait, the temple of the tabernacle isn't the tabernacle <coughs> part of the Old Testament and it even went away after they built the temple? So the Jews are right. The tabernacle is going to come back and you know, fall now, again. What does the tabernacle represent? If you actually let's see whether they have it here or not. Um, the tabernacle. The tent or cloth hut, habitation tabernacle. And in other translation, when it says the tabernacle, it says the dwelling they call it the dwelling, you know, a place where God lives with his people. So, the temple of the tabernacle, this is like the Holy of Holies, talking about the Holy of Holies. And we said, who is, who does that represent? Christ. Because he is the sacrifice that is offered on the, the altar, right? <coughs> was open in heaven and the seven angels came out of the temple came out of you know of heaven you know the most holy place having the seven plagues these are you know strikes they're gonna pour on earth clothed in pure and white linen this is the robe and the judges in the old days they were not wearing black they used to wear white sign of purity sign of you know uh, righteousness and they were tied at the breast, again the breast, tied, you know, a breast uh, gold band. This is again the sign of being a judge and being throwing in judgment on the earth. And not throwing. And we saw Christ in the same way back in the, you know, I think chapter uh, 1 or 2. The wearing the band at the rest. In Daniel, we saw Christ wearing the gold band at the waist because he was still about to be incarnated and about to do the work of salvation but after in revelation wearing the gold band and the, the chest because he is about to you know judge the world and give you know judgment and he's also letting the angels in their role as putting in the plague on the earth they are judging the world because they're doing an act of judgment and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The vials are basically something like uh, a small plate with a, a tip at the end. Right? So, they, you know, fill them, for example, with oil and you, know, you empty the oil into something else to, this, to the tip. That's the vial, basically. Full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Again, this is a symbolic presentation because the wrath of God is not something tangible. And they're going to take somebody's anger and pour it in the cup. So it's a symbolic way of saying that the reason for these plagues is God's wrath and anger. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His authority. And no one was able to enter into the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So next time, inshallah, the Sunday after Easter, we will be talking about the seven plagues. Okay. Any questions?
God the man. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.